While actual combat was indeed nightmarish, being at home, helpless, constantly wondering about loved ones, fending for oneselves, proved to be equally harrowing. That particularly was the case in the American South, the Confederacy, which served as the primary stage for the four-year-long conflict. And so, we return to those 11 seceded states whose political leaders sought independence, but instead sowed the seeds and reaped the whirlwind for southern turmoil and destruction. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. In April 1861, electricity was in the southern air, a second war for independence, if you will. In four years, however, that sense of history and national destiny was replaced by devastation. During the conflict, the people of the South endured hardships and privations unlike anything northern civilians experienced. Before, an air of romanticism and gallantry, and much of that originated from the wrongful perception of life on plantations. Let's get this straight. Regardless of how many times one has watched Gone with the Wind, planters made up only one-half of one percent of the some nine million who lived in the South. Only about one-fourth of all white families even owned slaves in 1860. And of those who did, around half owned no more than five. The white social class that was greatest in number was that of yeoman farmers, clannish and fiercely independent, though they shared similar economic goals with planters, the yeoman farmer was at odds with them. The next social class was made up by some two million poor whites. Trying to unite and harness those three socioeconomic groups, as well as four million who were enslaved, was the burden for Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Many, in their eyes, feared his wartime measures and conditions would turn the South into a replica of, again from their perspective, vulgar northern mercantile society. For Davis, he had to maintain the status quo, yet lead a nation in the midst of a war that created monumental economic and social strain. And because planters found themselves cut off from their traditional sources of wealth, a fledgling mercantile class did indeed arise. Yes, many were forced into new roles and relocation, forced to leave the countryside for the believed safety of cities like the Confederate capital Richmond. The war and the measures to wage it, like an income tax, conscription, and impressment, created great internal dissent. Indeed, the very makeup of the Confederate government created turmoil. Most of the 28 senators and 122 representatives of the first Confederate Congress came from the minority, the wealthy professional and planter class. 
they were, as it turned out, more fundamental flaws. The Confederate government never created a Supreme Court. Political parties never developed. And that meant there was no block support for or against legislation and policy. Now, early on, there were those who sided with or against Davis's leadership. If you were pro-Davis, you believed in strong central authority and occasional sacrifice of civil liberties. If against, you were in the state's rights camp. The chasm so great that fist fights and violent threats were issued on the floor of the Confederate Congress. For support, Davis turned to his cabinet. In 1861, Davis filled six posts with men from six different states. It didn't help him that his cabinet throughout the war proved to be a revolving door. Four secretaries of state, five attorney generals, six secretaries of war. A few, like Secretary of War James Seddon of Virginia, performed well. He tried to unify command in the West and exert control of the Southern transportation system. But the bleak military picture forced his removal in February of 1865. Another solid member was Judah P. Benjamin. A successful lawyer and sugar planter before the war, he served in several cabinet roles as Secretary of War, Attorney General, and Secretary of State. Though handcuffed by his Jewish faith, there was so much more than religion that dragged him and his government down. Most inflexible by nature, Jefferson Davis was a veritable lightning rod for criticism. As he put it, I make no terms, I accept no compromises. Many took his stubbornness for arrogance and his dogged determination for ambition. No question, he had a temper and made worse by poor health, blind in one eye and a partial facial paralysis. Many would have been surprised that he commuted every death sentence for desertion that crossed his desk. Few knew he, personally, wrote thousands of replies to letters. What he and his country needed were industrial promoters, one was James Dunwoody Brownson DeBoe, a New Orleans journalist who published DeBoe's Review. Before the war, he thought the South must industrialize or remain hopelessly bound to the North, but he believed that in war, the Union blockade would force the South to industrialize, much like the War of 1812 had forced New England. If there was a shining example of industrial output, it was Richmond's Tredegar Ironworks, which employed some 1,500 skilled workers. All 2,500 of its laborers were clothed thanks to the owner's construction of his own tannery and shoe factory. The cloth he ran through the blockade he bought. Tredegar cast 1,099 cannon during the war, nearly half of all made. It was also a center for research for new armament. Owner and manager Joseph Reed Anderson was, if you will, the Krupp of the Confederacy. Another who showed great skill was Josiah Gorgas, a transplanted Pennsylvanian who in 1861 became chief of ordnance and, in short, worked miracles. And yet another kindred spirit was Colonel George Washington Raines, 
His miracle was the more than just ample production of gunpowder. To produce it, one needed charcoal, sulfur, and nitre or saltpeter. The Confederacy had the first two, but when Union gains threatened what nitre there was in eastern Tennessee and northern Alabama, Rains developed a plan to produce it. He literally created a nitre core. Workers in that entity first dug shallow pits and filled them with organic matter like animal carcasses, manure, and vegetable scraps. Stagnant water and urine were added. Left to decompose for 18 months, the compost was shoveled into hoppers, leached with water, and the nitre removed. His plant, the largest gunpowder plant, produced almost from scratch some 5,000 pounds of gunpowder a day, and it all took place at the facility known as the Augusta Powder Works. It's industrial guts from everywhere. It's rollers from Richmond, steam pipes from New Orleans, copper boilers from Wilmington, a steam engine from Atlanta, and cast iron shaft from Chattanooga. Pieced together, it made the Augusta Powder Works one of the most productive powder mills on the continent. Sad that war was the catalyst for all this Southern creativity. But from the efforts of those like Anderson, Gorgas, and Rains, the South never lost a major battle due to a lack of armament. Clothing, however, was another matter. Its industry and production decentralized. In fact, Textiles was more a cottage industry. 2,000 women stitched in Richmond, 3,000 in Atlanta, thousands more throughout the South. States' rights may not have only killed the Confederacy in the long run, but this industry as well. Most states hoarded most of the wool and cotton produced in their mills. For example, at the end of 1864, North Carolina had consumed the entire production of its 40 textile mills, which represented half of the Confederate mills still in operation. There were other concerns. Because raw leather was short on supply, and Union invasions in 1862 disrupted the flow of cattle and horses to tanneries in Tennessee, shoes were scarce. Once again, necessity became the mother of invention. Cobblers made use of skins from squirrels, alligators, and dogs. Wooden clogs were made. Bonnets were made from pine needles, palmetto fronds, straw and corn shucks. And if and when industrial activity was successful, distribution was the next challenge. Severely limited by the strain the war put on southern railroads. The North had some 22,000 miles, the South only 8,541, and that mileage was used by 113 small railroads. The longest was 469 miles of track, and to add to the dilemma, gauges were not standardized. To illustrate the problem, 280 miles is the distance between Jackson, Mississippi, and Montgomery, Alabama. Yet for Jefferson Davis to attend his own inauguration, he had to travel from Jackson to Chattanooga, Tennessee, then double back to Montgomery. The entire distance, 750 miles. 
Railroad companies refused government appeals to standardize their gauges and also refused to lend rolling stock to another company. Lack of fuel forced stops. Single tracks a nightmare. And the Confederate government, under the bridle of states' rights, did not nationalize its rail until it was far too late. Another southern dilemma, too much acreage devoted to raising cotton. Now granted, the upper Mississippi Valley did supply large amounts of beef, corn, pork, flour, fruits, butter, and cheese. But by the spring of 1862, much of that was threatened or in Union hands. That year, and in an effort to remedy the problem, the Confederate Congress passed a resolution mandating that food crops, rather than tobacco or cotton, should be raised. An unexpected consequence developed later, and Major General William T. Sherman noted it. While marching through Georgia in 1864, he wrote, Convey to Jeff Davis my personal and official thanks for abolishing cotton and substituting corn and sweet potatoes. Let's clear up another misconception. Despite the war and Union occupation, the South did raise enough food to feed itself. The problem was again getting it to the citizens and soldiers. And because distribution problems were made worse by federal invasion and occupation, inflation was rampant. In March of 1863, butter was $3.50 a pound. By February of 1864, it was $25 a pound. Cornmeal went up from $6 a bushel to $20. Coffee was $50 a pound. A barrel of flour, $300. And speaking of dollars and cents, the Confederate Secretary of the Treasury, South Carolina's Christopher G. Memminger, erred. He thought, like many, even his northern counterpart, Salmon Chase, that the war would be short. Therefore, Memminger called for few war taxes and modest bond rates. He relied on imports, but the Union blockade sabotaged that economic strategy. And because Europeans wanted to be paid in specie, much of the Confederates' hard money left the country. With no national medium of exchange, no new taxes, and with specie flowing out, Miminger opted to print paper money, unsupported by gold, and as it turned out, to make it worse, states and banks followed suit. The Confederacy coined no money, so the use of U.S. silver dollars, English sovereigns, French Napoleons, and Spanish and Mexican doubloons helped to create a fiscal mess. By 1863, even U.S. greenbacks found their way into the Confederacy and were valued four to one over Confederate printed currency. To make matters worse, the Federals printed fake Confederate paper money and dumped it into the South, adding to the financial disaster. At one point, some 2.2 billion unsupported dollars floated throughout the Confederacy. The war collapsed more than financial worlds. Long entrenched class lines and gender roles morphed. Day to day lives changed. To fight the war, plantation teams and wagons were required. Plantation bells were donated, melted down to make cannon. 
When invasion threatened citizens, silverware, fine brandy, and precious books were shipped to safety. The war also rocked social mores. For example, first cousins did the previously unthinkable. They married first cousins. In one slaveholding area of Alabama, 38% of all slaveholding couples were first cousins. In terms of gender, male clerks disappeared from stores. Women now served in previously unheard of roles such as nurses, clerks, and teachers. They ran farms, managed businesses, and yet, despite all the upheaval, the war empowered creativity in the arts. The musician, poet, and author from Georgia, Sidney Lanier, thought the war created a seedbed for new Southern literature, and as he put it, with color not rose pink, but blood red. Its perfume, that of sulfur and nitre, its sound, the ring of steel. South Carolina's William Gilmore Sims went from writing obscure romances to pamphleteering. John Easton Cook, a lawyer who believed Virginia descended from aristocratic English cavaliers, jumped into the literary patriotic fray with his The Life of Stonewall Jackson. Now, the blockade affected European works, but those that did get through found Southern printing, like the most popular book of the time, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Of course, the passages condemning slavery were dropped. Sir Walter Scott, who Mark Twain thought in great measure responsible for the war, found his medieval romantic works widely read. Poetry also surged. The most popular, some actually thought him, the poet laureate of the Confederacy, was Henry Timrod. His patriotic themes often dealt with the downsides of the Confederate war effort. For example, one of his poems was entitled, The Unknown Dead. Many amateur writers and poets found their release through Southern newspapers, but as the war dragged on, newsprint became a coveted commodity. When white newsprint ran low, the Charleston Mercury resorted to using fuchsia. Houston's tri-weekly telegraph used newsprint that was colored brown, shell pink, orange, moss green, kelly green, blue, and yellow. When the Vicksburg Daily Citizen ran out of newsprint, its editors turned to wallpaper. And when ink ran scarce, the Memphis Appeal used shoe polish. With money tough to come by, subscriptions for newspapers were often paid for by barter. Many did not survive. For example, in Florida, 17 of the state's 26 newspapers folded in the first year of the war. Only 26 of 57 survived in North Carolina. Virginia lost 86% of its newspapers. And in newspapers that did survive, Jefferson Davis and his cabinet were subjected to vicious editorial attack. Remarkably, unlike Abraham Lincoln and the North, the Confederate president and his cabinet maintained throughout the war freedom of the press. Now, not all papers were anti-this or that. There were some that tried to bolster morale. The Vicksburg Daily Citizen, for one, was not above bending the truth to lift sagging spirits. 
Another, the New Orleans Bee never acknowledged the Battle of Shiloh as a Confederate defeat. The South Carolinian rationalized that it took 100,000 Federals to take Vicksburg. Some wrote of Gettysburg as a victory, even three weeks after Lee had retreated back into Virginia. Now, newspaper and poems were not the only instruments for patriotism. There was the power of music, and oh, how patriotic airs abounded. Some 600 pieces of sentimental sheet music were produced during the war. The music and lyrics offered escape, and one popular piano virtuoso who played them was Blind Tom Bethune. Managed by his master, Blind Tom had perfect pitch and could reproduce any composition after hearing it only once. His repertoire? Some 7,000 tunes. Though music flourished, education did not. 260 institutions of higher learning floundered. Ole Miss, the universities of Georgia, South Carolina, and LSU closed. Many struggled to stay open after significant numbers of students and faculty marched off to war. For example, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's graduating class of 1862 shrank to 24. Three years earlier, 125 had graduated. Carolina's 1865 commencement was held, but was monitored by 35 bluecoats from the 10th Ohio, and only 15 graduated. Of that number, only four were actually in attendance. The fact that UNC even held commencement was quite a story. Carolina was one of only two colleges in the South to remain in operation throughout the Civil War. The other, another North Carolina school, Davidson. At first, Southern students were protected from Confederate conscription, but that ended as the Southern military picture darkened. If colleges suffered, public education took an absolute beating. Only North Carolina, Tennessee, and Alabama, three of the 11 seceded Confederate states, and Kentucky, a border state, had any organized system of mass education, and that had limits. In many rural areas, schools simply shut down. As you might expect, curriculum fell victim to the war, too. Northern textbooks were discarded, and textbooks that were used championed the Southern cause. For example, Johnson's elementary arithmetic posed, If one Confederate soldier kills 90 Yankees, how many Yankees can 10 Confederate soldiers kill? Melinda B. Moore's text, Geography, offered commentary on the Confederacy's principal obstacle to trade. As way of explanation, she wrote that it was due to an unlawful blockade by the miserable and hellish Yankee nation. The geographical reader for Dixie Children stressed that slavery was not sinful and reminded that all the little boys and girls should remember that slaves were human and that God would hold them accountable for treating slaves with injustice. This message spilled over nicely to another powerful institution in the South, the church. The constant themes from the pulpit 
Slavery was ordained by God, and the South was morally superior to the materialistic North. In fact, Episcopal Bishop Stephen Elliott of Georgia saw the war as a chance to destroy, as he put it, the infidel and rationalistic principles of the misguided Yankees who were attempting to substitute a gospel of the stars and stripes for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some ministers actually served in the war, like Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk and Brigadier General William Pendleton. Those still behind the pulpit, like South Carolina Reverend James Thornwell or Benjamin Palmer of New Orleans, goaded men to fight and die a la Joshua. One field chaplain named Brady near Columbus, Kentucky, took his faith to Old Testament heights when he shot two Federals, slashed the throat of another, and ran after the retreating enemy shouting, Go to hell, you damn sons of bitches! least chief of artillery, the already mentioned Pendleton, once reportedly uttered, while we kill their bodies, may the Lord have mercy on their sinful and misguided souls. Fire! On several instances, Jefferson Davis set aside days of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. But as the military picture turned sour, church membership declined, and the message from the pulpit changed. Now God was meeting out punishment for lewdness, violating the Sabbath, avarice, and intemperance. In response, churches and even Confederate armies went revivalist. No question, the prospect of defeat added to the already great strain on class lines. As early as June 25, 1861, from Concord, North Carolina, came the cry, the rich people are only going to make the poor people do all the fighting. The rich only pretend to go. This attitude reinforces that indeed there was never a solid South. Facing defeat, loyalties became more local and often personal. Even as great as February of 1861, the Augusta Chronicle warned, the greatest danger to the new Confederacy arises not from without, not from the North, but from our own people. And no way to overlook it, the issue that Davis privately called an evil, slavery, bitterly divided the Confederacy. In the very first summer of the war, 1861, Wheeling, Virginia, within one of 24 northwestern Virginia counties, voted three to one against secession. By August of that year, those 24 counties created the independent state of Kanawha and later gave 30,000 soldiers to the Union. One did not have to look any further for dissension than the Confederate vice president, Alexander Stevens, a Georgian who reacted against martial law, suspension of habeas corpus, and conscription. And like in the North, the draft angered many. Like in the North, it was hated. America's first in April of 1862 included the ages 18 to 35 for three years, and 12-month enlistees were held for an additional two years. Many thought the draft unconstitutional. And again, like up North, the list of exemptions seemed to favor the wealthy and influential. One could get a substitute for $300, and some 50000 did just that. And again, like in the North, the system was exploited. 
One Richmond substitute peddled himself 20 times. Exemptions included mail carrier, telegraph operator, newspaper printer, cotton mill worker, apothecary, teacher of 20 or more students, minister, railroad hand, munitions worker, tanner, blacksmith, wheelwright, and instructor of the deaf and blind. The most controversial element, the 20 Negro law. If one owned 20 or more slaves, he was exempt. The plain yeoman farmer was convinced the system was extremely unfair, and if conscripted, many simply ignored it. In East Tennessee, for example, 25,500 conscripts were enrolled, but only some 6,000 were added to Confederate musters. Perhaps half of those 25,000-plus actually reported and the magnitude of the war in 1863 forced the Confederate government in Richmond to pass a bill to tax property, income, and profits. The tax in kind took 10% of all corn, wheat, rice, cotton, oats, sugar, salt, potatoes, buckwheat, peas, beans, bacon, and other meats. And this came one year after Confederate armies began requisitioning or impressment. Some impressed to excess, and as a result, Richmond became a city of displaced refugees. Some 35,000 citizens in 1861 swelled to 128,000 by 1864. Rent increased four times in two years. The average food bill went from $6.65 per month at the time of secession to $68 a month by early 1863. The situation was evident in almost all southern cities, and trouble ensued. In 1863, an Atlanta woman brandishing a pistol led a group of women into a butter shop. In Richmond, on the 2nd of April that same year, a group of angry women met at a Baptist church on Oregon Hill and under the leadership of Mary Jackson, marched to Capitol Square where they read grievances to Virginia Governor John Letcher. When he made no concessions, they rioted. The mob surged to the business district, smashing and rampaging as they grabbed clothes and food. Some stormed a hospital and seized 300 pounds of beef. Soldiers arrived and pushed the mob up Main Street, and that's when Jefferson Davis appeared. Climbing atop a carriage and calling for the mob to disperse, he was hissed and booed. When they surged around him, he cried, You are hungry and have no money. Here is all I have. It is not much, but take it. He emptied his pockets and then took out his pocket watch and opened it for all to see. He said, We do not desire to injure anyone. But this lawlessness must stop. I will give you five minutes to disperse. Otherwise, you will be fired upon. There was deathly silence. Then by twos and threes, the mob left, and the Richmond bread riot ended. The black mood was not only in Confederate cities, but by autumn of 1863, it raged across class lines. Confederate Major General Edmund Kirby Smith noted, The common folk are tired of fighting. 
They simply want the boys to come home. At the end of 63, the Confederate roster numbered some 465,000. Only 278,000 were on active duty. The balance of the remaining 187,000 were either absent with or without leave. Despite the general policy for desertion, which was forgiveness, many ignored amnesty and some formed bands or gangs. In South Carolina, a group actually built a log fort to hole up in. In Mississippi, a band decided to aid short-handed farmers. In Madison County, North Carolina, after about 50 raided for salt and supplies, a group of the Home Guard went after the raiders and massacred 15 in January of 1863. Jones County, Mississippi, became a bastion of deserter strength. So much so, the county was known as the Republic or Free State of Jones. In other words, Southerners made lousy Confederates, particularly when the war news was bad or when federal invasion swept into and through southern locales. Northern incursions led to circumstances that caused southern civilians to suffer in ways that, again, few, if any, northern civilians could begin to relate. Federal armies burned houses, destroyed fences and outbuildings, confiscated food, slaughtered livestock and wagons. In the beginning, if a home was occupied, it was usually spared. Later, under Sherman and Sheridan, it didn't matter. Household silver was the coveted prize, and Southern families tried in every way to hide it. In baby cradles, bird nests, swamps, outhouses, under beds cradling pregnant women or ailing grandmothers, even dangling under hoop skirts. Sometimes plunder might be averted if an oath of allegiance was taken. It is a fact that U.S. Grant did issue a directive that banished from home every Southern family with a father, husband, or brother in the Confederate Army. Widows and orphans of slain Confederate soldiers were included. However, the edict was never enforced. One that was enforced and caused one of the greatest controversies originated with the federal military governor of New Orleans— Benjamin Butler. Beginning in May 1862, he began to banish or jail all Confederate activists and confiscate their property. He seized some $800,000 in Confederate silver that was hidden within the Dutch Council. He hanged one Confederate who desecrated the U.S. flag, but one particular measure had him declared by the Confederate president an outlaw. It was order number 28, and for those women who showed disrespect for the flag or Union troops, it stated, She shall be regarded as a woman of the town, plying her avocation. Now, in his defense, he did keep plunder down, taxed the wealthy to feed the poor, and in court held blacks on the same level with whites. But none of that endeared him to the population. Yes, he was hated so much that he was nicknamed Beast Butler and became a target for bodily function. 
his likeness centered on the bottom of porcelain chamber pots for aiming. He became so controversial that by December of 1862, President Lincoln relieved him. Perhaps one of the most pitiful sights from the war were refugees. Driven from their homes and lives, the fleeing, white and black, could be preyed upon by stragglers and deserters. To escape, some went west. For example, at the beginning of the war, some North Carolina mountain people left for Indiana. Some in Arkansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Mississippi moved to eastern and central Texas, a despised area, as one Louisiana resident put it, where there was no society above the grade of Comanche and no schools worth sending the children to. Refugees flooded Houston and San Antonio, Tyler, Marshall, and Waco, all doubled in population. Back east, those fleeing homes and making their way from Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, and Alabama battled for dwindling resources and therefore became the subject of great disdain. The displaced from certain areas even took on stereotypical personifications. Virginia's were the haughtiest. Particularly loathing were those from Maryland. And to repeat, not all refugees were white. Some fleeing slaveholders tried to sell off their slaves or send them into the backcountry or non-threatened areas. Some 150,000 enslaved persons from Mississippi and Louisiana were taken to Texas, and more than a few used the upheaval to run away. Yet joining their liberators in blue did not necessarily mean safety or equality, for Union soldiers could be quite harsh and unsympathetic. Still, in occupied areas, black males did have a chance to fight for their freedom. The first unit of former slaves to be mustered into the Confederate Army was the first South Carolina Volunteers. In total, we believe some 186,000 blacks served in federal armies. With draining Confederate manpower, arming African Americans for the Confederate cause was in hushed tones controversially discussed, but the idea was usually dismissed with, as one citizen put it, if the slave will make good soldiers, then our whole theory of slavery is wrong. By the late summer of 1864, and certainly after Lincoln's re-election, indeed much within the Confederacy was wrong, bad wrong. Confederate numbers in uniform were down to about 150,000, and defeat seemed certain. More than $700 million of Confederate paper money was worth perhaps a fortieth of its face value. The draft now included 14- to 18-year-olds for the junior reserve, and men from 45 to 60 for the senior Though both usually served in rear guard duty, the Confederacy was, as many put it, robbing the cradle and the grave to keep the doomed Confederacy alive. Southern crops had been largely stripped, stores made off with, livestock gone, fences down, implements destroyed or rusted, and houses and buildings deteriorating. The coming dread of defeat made rational people act irrational. Relentless depredation, hunger, and turmoil made many call for peace at any price. 
But Jefferson Davis refused to negotiate without the guarantee of full independence and preservation of the South's institution, well, obviously slavery. Three informal peace probes in 1864 were attempted, but nothing came of them. Quite honestly, Davis faced opponents in his front and with the war going badly from his rear. A third suspension of habeas corpus made it worse. The anti-Confederate Davis organizations, the Peace and Constitutional Society, Order of the Heroes of America, and Peace Society, all gained momentum. And Governors Joseph Brown of Georgia and Zebulon B. Vance of North Carolina, already feisty states' rightists throughout the war, well, they were quite vocal. As Vance put it, all this appears to be a case of revolution for the politicians and not the people. Governor Brown led legislation condemning the suspension of habeas corpus. Mississippi and Louisiana followed suit. North Carolina's legislature nullified the measure. Brown, after Atlanta fell, recalled for state defense 10,000 of Georgia's militia that had been attached to the Confederate Army of Tennessee. Governor Thomas Watts of Alabama refused to allow any of Alabama's militia to leave the state. Vance of North Carolina withheld 92,000 uniforms, huge stores of blankets and shoe leather, reserving it for Tar Heel troops. Georgian Henry Cleveland of the Augusta Constitutionalists called for Georgia to save itself. Sherman delighted in all of this and even asked for a conference with Georgia's Governor Brown and Confederate Vice President Stevens. Though anti-Davis, the two refused. From almost all quarters, the Confederate President and his cabinet caught the brunt of blame. The last ray of hope was the election of 1864. The Democratic peace plank, as Stevens put it, was the first ray of light I have seen from the North since the war began. And then George McClellan dashed Confederate hopes when he parted from his Democratic Party's platform, saying, The Union is the one condition of peace. We ask no more. With the Democrats divided, Lincoln was easily reelected. It was now simply a matter of staggering to the end. By January of 1865, firewood was $150 a cord, flour $425 a barrel. Desertions from the period of October the 1st, 1864 to early 1865 numbered 70,000 plus men. Desperation had Davis and the Confederate Congress at each other's throats. Some legislators even approached Robert E. Lee suggesting a dictatorship. He recoiled in horror. He did, however, accept the newly created commander-in-chief military position in early 1865. And in another sign of Confederate desperation, in March of 65, blacks were allowed to fight for the Confederacy with the inference that they would receive their freedom. But all of it, all, was too late. The last conference between Lincoln, his Secretary of State William Seward, and three Confederate delegates took place on the River Queen in Hampton Roads, Virginia. It was February the 3rd, 1865, 
and Vice President Alexander Stevens led the Confederate delegation. As he, Virginia Senator R. M. T. Hunter, and former Supreme Court Judge John A. Campbell passed through the lines near Petersburg, Virginia, men from both armies cheered. Yet, after four hours of talk, the Confederate demand for independence short-circuited any resolution. The war and consequent destruction would continue. More common soldiers would die, and more southern homes would reap the whirlwind of civil war. As to the war and its memory, for years I have often heard the anguished question, why won't southerners just let it go? Perhaps it's because the war was fought almost exclusively in the South. No question, that part of the country was ravaged. By 1865, fully two-thirds of the Confederacy's 750,000 square miles was under federal control. The cost of war and defeat? $10 billion in property damage. The southern infrastructure in shambles. Railroads and harbors destroyed, two-fifths of its livestock destroyed, and half of its farm machinery. It would take one quarter of a century just to replace its horses, and about that to return to pre-war farm production levels. The South owed $712 million in war debt. Add the incredible loss of life, and one has to shake his or her head to wonder what if earlier compromises about the existence of slavery and its expansion had not been compromises, but decisions. Tough ones, but the right ones. The end of slavery would have forced the South to diversify. But instead, Southern defeat, destruction, and with it, angry Northern politicians wanted to reap the multi-layered fruits of victory. For the South, no political help was coming. And to make that point crystal clear, from 1788 to 1860, Southerners held the presidency 50 of that 72-year time span. The title of Chief Justice, 60. Before the war, the South furnished more than one-half of Supreme Court justices, nearly one-half of cabinet rank, and more than half of the speakers of the House. But during the next half century after the conflict, no president or vice president save Andrew Johnson, only 14 of 133 cabinet members, seven of 31 justices, and only two of 12 speakers. The next American president from the South would be Virginia's Woodrow Wilson, and that in 1912. The next American president from the Deep South, Jimmy Carter, in 1976. And lest we forget, those having to fight and back up politicians' overblown oratory, some 260,000 Confederate soldiers, about a quarter of the South's able-bodied men, dead. The specter of Southern defeat took on an ominous set of dimensions. Many then, and yes, some even now, share the belief 
held by one Confederate general, Major General Patrick Claiborne, who controversially believed that Southern enslaved blacks should be armed, used in Confederate service, and for their service, freed. By April of 1865, he had been in his grave for almost five months. But before his untimely death in the November 1864 Battle of Franklin, he wrote, Surrender means that history of this heroic struggle will be written by the enemy, that our youth will be trained by northern school teachers, will learn from northern school books their version of the war, will be impressed by all the influences of history and education to regard our gallant dead as traitors and our maimed veterans as fit subjects for derision. That fear and the South's destruction while serving as the cockpit for the American Civil War means that even with reunification over 160 years ago, as we now wrestle with pandemic and political polarization, yes, even as we all call ourselves American, there are some that believe the scars of the American Civil War are still raw and that the wounds still bleed. More times than not, most, when considering which Union generals were responsible for victory, think of and credit only a select few. One Union general, however, always seems to be overlooked. We hope to change that. When next we gather, we will give time to a Union general who hailed from Virginia, one whose meticulous attention to detail and solid leadership earned him the nicknames the Rock of Chickamauga and the Sledge of Nashville. Next up, credit to one who has been for far too long overlooked and unappreciated, one who most assuredly deserves recognition for helping to break the Confederacy. I hope you'll join us for the man and officer who should be mentioned in the same breath with Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan. Next time, Union Major General George Henry Thomas. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.